Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Pacific Century, the Hoover Institution's podcast on Asia, China, the United States, and the fate of the 21st century. I'm joined here by my co-host, Misha Oslin, fellow at the Hoover Institution. Say hello, everybody, Misha. Hello, everybody. And I'm uh, John Yu, a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution and a professor at UC Berkeley. Misha's got a great guest for us today. Misha, why don't you take it away? John, we do, we do have a great guest, although we should note for the listening audience that this is a very special edition of uh, Pacific Century, not just because we have a great guest, but because John and I are actually in the same time zone. <laughs> We're both on the East Coast. In fact, John's just a few hours from me, so we, we feel so much, so much closer. But you know what? The Chinese seamless. already knew that. They, of course they did. They, they're tracking you, but I feel it's going to be a seamless show and, and it's going to be easier to track us because we're much closer geographically. So we are, but we are actually talking, though we are together on the East Coast, we are talking with someone in Japan. And our guest today is Robin Harding, who is the Financial Times Tokyo Bureau Chief. Uh, Robin, uh, for those of you who read the Times, is, is well known. He's been uh, with the paper for uh, a number of years. We'll find out exactly how many, but uh, he was in Washington until 2015, covered economic issues, the Fed, uh, Treasury, and the IMF. Uh, But then he was, uh, before that, the economist editor in Washington, so he had a long stint in D.C., uh, but then also had been in Japan before for the FT as a tech reporter. So, Robin, uh, welcome back to uh, Tokyo, I guess, in in a sense, and uh, welcome to the Pacific Century. Um, thank you very much. Delighted to join you today. Well, we're, we're thrilled you're here and, and probably our listeners, most of whom know what's going on in Asia and care about Asia, know why we have you here, uh, not just because we want to learn from you, but because on Friday of last week, uh, Japanese Prime Minister Suga visited President Biden in Washington, D.C. Uh, this was the first foreign uh, leader to come to the White House uh, in President Biden's tenure. Of course, they had actually met virtually uh, before uh, during the quad meeting and, and I think before that um, uh, and for president uh, for Prime Minister Suga uh, it's uh, his uh, I believe it's his first US president he's met I don't think he met uh, President Trump uh, so this was a this was a big deal uh, so we want to spend some time talking with you about uh, one of the crucial parts of Asia which is the US Japan Alliance one of the crucial countries in Asia which is Japan which doesn't get as much attention even even from us because we're all often talking about China so why don't we start off a little bit, uh, if you can just tell us from your perspective in Tokyo, uh, how you thought the summit went, the meeting, and and what was the reaction in Japan? Why was it important, or or was it just run-of-the-mill? So the summit was very well received in Japan, although to be honest, Mr. Suga had won before he even got on the aeroplane, simply by being President Biden's first foreign leader. And that's incredibly important in Japan. It's incredibly important in a number of Asian countries, which is quite hard to understand often from a European or US perspective, where sort of meetings between leaders are are considered a, a routine thing. But certainly in Japan, the ability of a prime minister to get in front of a U.S. president, to have meetings with the, you know, the, the, the leaders of China and South Korea is considered a measure of their ability and success as leaders. So simply by meeting um, President Biden and being his first foreign leader meeting, that was a victory for, for Suga domestically. In terms of the content, 
uh, it seems to have been a successful and substantive summit. They talked for a long time. Um, it's always hard to tell how much chemistry there is. Mr. Suga's not a particularly warm character, um, but uh, I think Joe Biden is makes up for for, for that side of things. Um, in terms of the the substance that came out of it, um, th- there's a. The sort of statements on the region are quite strong. Uh, the statements on China are quite strong language compared with what Japan is normally willing to sign up to. And then there's a, a list of things that they're now going to do together and talk about further. I think the big question that still remains is how much substance there is in all of that, because it's quite easy to have warm words at a summit. Japan often finds it much, much more difficult to turn those warm words into the kind of substantive actions that the U.S. is looking for. It was interesting, uh, first to go back to the issue of you mentioning he won before he got on the plane. Um, This is uh, two in a row for the Japanese because, of course, former Prime Minister Abe was the first foreign leader to meet uh, President Trump. Uh, In fact, met him right after the election uh, when he was uh, president-elect and then uh, was the first foreign leader, not at the White House, but met him down at Mar-a-Lago, the first foreign leader. Uh, And for the Japanese, it was very important to uh, to you know, stabilize that relationship. They had been worried about things that President Trump had been saying on the campaign trail. And I think in some ways, uh, given the warmth of the relationship between Prime Minister Abe and President Trump, there was the same concern in Japan as whether Prime Minister Suga would be able to form uh, a warm relationship with President Biden. So it's, it's interesting that you point out the way the way that he won. Um, before we get a little too far into the the summit, and I know John will have some questions about that. Maybe we could uh, actually talk just a bit about the the who Suga is and the differences between Suga and his predecessor, Prime Minister Abe Shinzo Abe, who was the longest serving Japanese premier. Um, uh, you know, had a sort of rise from the ashes, a phoenix like resurrection in Japanese politics, but uh, in many ways um, a unique figure and wildly successful, at least as you would judge Japanese politics. Who's Suga and, and, and what's he doing? Suga's a very interesting character. Um, the sort of origin story for Suga is that his his father was a strawberry farmer in the northern prefecture of Akita. And Suga rose from, you know, provincial obscurity. I don't think it's really poverty, um, but certainly provincial obscurity to rise all the way up through national politics to become prime minister. And that's unlike Abe, who, by the way, who was the son of a foreign minister, the grandson of a prime minister. So one of the if he were, if he were Chinese, we'd call him a princeling. Yeah. And Japanese politics is full of princelings. And it's very rare for someone to make it without a political background. And there's a bunch of reasons why it's so difficult to do with the electoral system and other things. But Suga's made it to the top. And he he started in politics as a political secretary to uh, an LDP heavy hitter, um, eventually ran in local politics in Yokohama um, and served for you know a decade or more as a, a Yokohama councillor before becoming a, a national politician and eventually making it to the top. And he's famed, in sort of practical terms, he's famed as an operator, a sort of behind-the-scenes political bruiser. Um, 
he's incredibly into the detail of decisions and he works through personnel. So it, it became, he, he was the chief cabinet secretary during the, the Abe administration, which is a sort of combination of press secretary and chief of staff. It's an incredibly powerful position. And in that position, he was sort of picking bureaucrats for every role. He was picking candidates for every LDP, um, you know, electoral contest. So he works behind the scenes by um, choosing his people. And so much like John, basically, <laughs> a bruiser working behind the scenes. I was going to say it's like uh, James Carville became president. <laughs> you know who was Bill Clinton? For those who don't know, Bill Bill Clinton's uh, behind the scenes political maestro. <laughs> it's kind of like that. Although I think James Carville. And the, the strange thing about Suga as a national leader is he really doesn't have many of the soft political skills that you think are essential to to be a modern political leader. He's incredibly sort of dur and he he doesn't emote um his his speaking style is completely flat and he's not someone you can imagine firing up the troops at all um so much like me i think that misha from this conversation so far <laughs> you're lively and dynamic and um this is not You'd be the prime way minister the, for life mr. in japan <laughs> mr sugar talks so i mean it, it the the sort of this is just the, the 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 personality, but the big question about him still as prime minister is whether he can win elections and whether he can actually sway the public at important moments. And then I guess finally a note on the sort of policy differences between him and Abe. I mean, Abe was well known as a conservative and a nationalist, and that was the root of his political identity, and it was fairly easy to trace that in what he did. Mr. Suga's a bit different. I mean, his background in politics, the sort of core issues that he's passionate about, he's more of a sort of free markets, or even more than that, he's an anti-establishment, anti-bureaucracy, anti-institutions kind of guy. And his his great political goals and, and successes have been sort of tearing down elements of the Japanese bureaucracy that he regards as oppressing the little guy. Um, so you see this in dare, his dare one say Trump-like in his opposition <laughs> to quote unquote the swamp. <laughs> I I would say more Thatcher-like, Thatcher -like, more Thatcher uh -huh. or Reagan-like. Uh -huh. mm. um, th those are the politicians mm -hmm. that he he resembles most. Um, and so you know you see it in his program of he wants to cut mobile phone charges, um, which. In one hand, that's a sort of pocketbook political uh, political issue, but also it's, you know, there are these three big, powerful mobile phone companies, and he wants to take them down a peg. And that's that's classic sort of Suga politics. So, uh, fantastic insight, by the way, into uh, how he's approaching, uh, you know, which is a hard act to follow. Abe, you know, who had very bold and visionary plans such as Abenomics, which I know you spent a lot of time reporting on, uh, but also Abe's, you know, real passion was foreign policy and uh, close relation, very close relationship with Indian uh, Prime Minister Modi, uh, but close relations throughout Asia. So it's a hard act to follow, but the way you've described him uh, for Suga is actually, is actually quite interesting. So 
Well, what happened at the summit? Was there anything uh, of note to come out in in your view? Uh, and then maybe we can get into some of the specifics, particularly uh, the comments on Taiwan, uh, which were a first, or at least a first in a very long time. Uh, the sort of action plan that was laid out. But what what struck you, uh, or was it just something like that? That just you know was sort of normal. Well. The Taiwan comments were really significant, as we reported in the run-up to the summit. The U.S. was pressing to have Taiwan mentioned, and Japan was very, very unsure whether it wanted to do that. And there was a big debate、um, internally in Japan, which ultimately ended up with this mention of peace and security across the Taiwan Strait. I think that's how it's referred to, and that was, I think, the first time in fifty years that. Taiwan has been explicitly mentioned in a, a U.S.-Japan、um, leaders summit, so that is really very significant. And just the general tone of the language on China is more direct and confrontational than Japan is normally comfortable with. So that I also took note of. And then in the the partnership, the sort of it's called the. I can't remember. It's called the core partnership. There's、mm-hmm. something competitiveness、yeah. and resilience partnership. Resilience,、yeah. There are several things in there to do with things like 5G and semiconductor supply chains, which are not elaborated, but are now going to be talked about and could lead to very significant decisions. That I think is all still all to play for, though. Well, let, let me、um, ask you a little bit more about. Uh, before the summit, if it did reflect these、uh, new policies or mention of Taiwan, even closer relationship with the U.S. over China、um, within the Japanese system, governments, where do these ideas come from? Right, they don't have a think tank system like we have in the U.S. Or I assume they don't have these special parliamentary study committees like in England. So how do the how does new how do new ideas get injected into? What Prime Minister Suga must think is a very hidebound governmental system, and then how does it cause you know what the Japanese might think of as rapid change? We might think of it as slow, but to them it might be rapid change. Where do the ideas come from? Well, in this case, I mean, the ideas came from the U.S. The I, I I don't think it was a Japanese idea. You know, let's 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 suddenly get tough on China.、Um, the way the way political ideas float up in Japan,、uh, they they often come through the ruling party, the the LDP, Liberal Democratic Party. So. A group of politicians will get together, often influenced by someone, an academic or whoever, and form a group to start debating an idea. And they'll put it on the agenda, and then it will gradually get absorbed into government policy, or it may come up through the bureaucracy in some way. That's generally how ideas、um, ideas come to happen. In in these sort of things, the debate about China and Japan is quite interesting now. It has moved quite a lot, but there are still significant forces within the government that do not want a confrontational relationship with China, and so there's a bit of a tug of war going on between the the right of the LDP, which basically has never seen an opportunity to bash China it doesn't like, and will happily go along with anything the US wants, and the. The A, the sort of business-oriented forces, which、um, 
you know, Japan has a huge economic relationship with China, and so they don't want to rock the boat. But then also the LDP's allies in the Kome Party, um, who are fundamentally pacifists and played a big part in normalizing Japan's relationship with China in, in the 70s, and are also not keen to sort of join a Japan bashing, oh, sorry, China bashing um approach so and, and Suga's kind of in the middle of that um and i think it quite suits him to be in the middle of that because he can go along with what the u.s wants but as i said the question is going to be whether that translates into real actual policy change you also see um suga and this summit uh maybe leading to any change of direction in the way uh japan interacts with not china but with other american allies in asia you know, with which it may not have had the best relations in the past, like South Korea, like the Philippines, Vietnam. Is it, uh, if Japan and the United States are going to work more closely uh, to contain China, these other allies all want to that same goal? Do you think it means that Japan's relations with those other countries becomes a happier, more productive one maybe than in the past? Well, there's three cases you mentioned that are all very different. Um, the Japanese relationship with South Korea is poisonous, and uh, you know, I think Mr. Biden wanted to sort of have something about South Korea in this summit, and that really was the line that Japan drew. I mean, I think Japan it, it, it's going to take something major and different to improve Japan's relationship with South Korea. Japan's relationship with the Philippines is very good um, and, and cooperative. Taiwan is just a special case. Um, Japan has historically been very reluctant to engage with Taiwan for the same reasons that others are reluctant to engage with Taiwan. And the US is now putting on the pressure for a closer relationship. Um, there are politicians in Japan who would very much like to do that. But this is really where the, you know, the rubber meets the road on this whole agenda, uh, because there is a price to pay if you you sort of have more reciprocal relations with Taiwan. China will make you pay that price. And it's not at all clear yet that Japan is willing to pay. So, Robin, uh, one of the so the two leaders held a, you know, a joint basically a presser together. And um, I was interested, actually, when you when you said that um, uh, the, the question was whether uh, Suga would have uh, sort of more to say or, or something specific to say. And actually, as I was reading the two, um, uh, the, the comments of both, it seemed to me that Suga had far more specifics that he actually brought in to his comments than than President Biden. Uh, and was there anything that he said that surprised you? And are there any specifics that, that you can point to to his comments that Japan and the United States now have to be prepared to increase and improve their deterrent and warfighting capabilities together? Yeah, so this is where it gets... Um it gets tricky. So, no, that didn't surprise me. I mean, describing the security situation in East Asia as severe has been standard Japanese language for quite a long time. And the, I think the thing to remember is that the US switch to regarding the security situation as severe is quite recent, whereas for Japan has been shouting about the severe security situation in East Asia for a decade or more um, and not always getting noticed in Washington 
when it tried to say that. So this for Japan, that's standard language. Um, and the, the, the concern about what's happening around the Senkaku Islands, for example, is deeply rooted and has been going on for a very long time. In terms of what Japan's actually going to do, big, big question. Um, as Japan has been sounding the alarm for a very long time, but its defense spending as a share of GDP has risen from about, you know, 1% of GDP to 1.05% of GDP or something like that. So Japan really isn't taking substantive actions of its own. And it's very unclear what substantive actions Japan would like the US to take. Um, the so the, this whole thing around Taiwan is fascinating because I think the US is now sort of wanting to plan military contingencies uh, for things that could happen around Taiwan. Japan, I think, is still deeply reluctant to get involved in anything like that. So this is where I say the rhetoric doesn't necessarily match the reality in terms of Japanese willingness to do things. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you you mentioned that this, you're right. I mean, certainly Japan has been banging on about, about threats and certainly even more strongly when it's in private uh, I, I think then then opposed to to public, but the American uh, shift, as as you call it, which you know, probably came about, I would sort of the end of the Obama administration. Um, yeah, it, it sort of from the outside made you downplay. You did, you heard what Japan was saying, but you didn't really react to it in, in some ways because it was it didn't translate into a sort of let's say unified uh, alliance approach, which is what we apparently. Uh, we apparently now have. Um, there's other things we could talk about on the military side, but I, I, I would I'd like to ask about the 5G and and the um, the AI side. Now, you know, from the perspective uh, of an American, you know, we would think that um, it would be natural to work with Japan on 5G and AI uh, for having and having done it for a long time already, right? Uh, it's it's an ally, it's a democracy, it's the world's third largest economy. It's obviously, you know, in many ways, even more technologically advanced than China. Uh, and yet we really haven't committed to it or neither side has committed. Um, first of all, why do you think that is? And then secondly, again, to your point before, is anything really going to come out of this, this core um, proclamation that we're now actually going to focus on these areas uh, when you think that so much potentially could be done? Why hasn't this sort of happened before? Well, I, I think the, the reality of 5G is that the, it, in a sort of period before people became intensely worried about these things, the standard was agreed, and it includes all these these patents, which are originally Nortel patents, which were sold to Huawei. Um, and Chinese companies had effectively displaced the traditional suppliers from that market. So, you know, 5G had become a very heavily Chinese proposition sort of before anyone really engaged with this idea. And there was, there's lots of um, Japanese and US intellectual property in the 5G standard too. Um, but the idea that you might want to have 5G as being somehow an American and Japanese 
thing didn't really exist until until very recently so the question now is is what can be done it's very difficult on 5g and one thing japan brings to the party is that it has some companies like nec who are still credible 5g suppliers which for us doesn't really have at this stage so that's that's one element and in the partnership both sides promised to spend a couple of billion dollars on research i'm trying to find out what the substance of that is no one is really saying yet i mean is this new money is it in any way joint research not very clear but i think what it's pointing towards is trying to have future standards that don't rely on Chinese intellectual property. I mean, it's not spelled out, but I think that's the direction of travel. So a beyond 5G standard, a 6G standard, who is going to have control of that? I think that's what's up for grabs here. And what about uh, artificial intelligence and, and you know, things that China is, is certainly focusing on and you know, what was used to be known as uh, Made in China 2025 or Indigenous Innovation, but which the, the party keeps hammering on that these are going to be, you know, the sort of commanding heights of the new, the new economy. Um, uh, again, you would think Japan should be a big player uh, in the AI sphere. Uh, you know, is it uh, in your in your view? And and what can the two countries here do together? Um, Japan's largely irrelevant in AI. It's a technology that doesn't play to Japan's strengths. It's very much a software technology. Um, the area where uh, Japan is very relevant and is mentioned in the statement is the semiconductor supply chain, where Japan is a very significant supplier of semiconductor manufacturing equipment. So, you know, for example, the, the most advanced lithography machines are made by ASM, ASML in the Netherlands, but to use one of those, you need a laser light source, and these things are huge. They're 40 tons, the latest laser light sources they're the size of a tank um but there are two suppliers so they can't be put on sharks <laughs> yet exactly as far as you know, as far as you know. Um, <laughs> but anyway, anyway there are two suppliers of these things there's a u.s supplier and a japanese supplier so if you control those you basically deny the ability to reach the cutting edge of semiconductor manufacture. So I suspect that is now the US ask of Japan is do not sell these things to 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 China. But again, that is not yet spelt out anywhere. And I think that's the debate that's now going to carry on again summit rhetoric versus reality is japan actually willing to sacrifice business opportunities and annoy china by refusing to sell cutting edge um semiconductor equipment to chinese companies well, robin let me um maybe uh, close the show by asking you what it's like to be what it's been like to be in japan uh these last few years you've been there uh, since 2019 is it and so what was like 2015 before covid oh 2015 i my mistake what's it been like before covid what's it been like during covid how do you feel japan's handled the pandemic um has have you what's uh i don't know it's you know these are the 
intangibles i think reporters like to talk about what's the morale like what's the national uh, mood like uh what's it going to be like as we emerge from the lockdowns and the pan- hopefully and beating the pandemic Mr. Abe, there was definitely a sense of optimism and revival in Japan, and just a sort of a sense of direction and a sense that there was a plan which there hadn't been for quite a while. And that kind of fizzled out a bit in disappointment towards the end of Abe's time. The pandemic has economically set Japan back and made these sort of plans to escape from deflation. It hasn't happened and there's no clear route to it ever happening now. Um, In terms of the pandemic, Japan has handled the pandemic pretty well and quite uniquely. I mean, it's been a unique case, I think, unlike anywhere else. Japan didn't go for the zero COVID strategy um, followed in Taiwan or China or Australia. Um, They let the virus, they, they sort of basically said, there's no way we can stop it spreading somewhat. But basically more successfully than anywhere else, managed to live with the virus um, with sort of very targeted restrictions, sort of allowing them to keep it under control. So schools closed briefly last spring, but they've basically been open. Um, Restaurants have been open. Shops have been open. The the limits on day-to-day life have been far, far less than in Europe and the US. Um, Now we're needing the vaccines um and that's proving to be really really slow in japan um both for reasons of regulation and because japan doesn't have its own suppliers so it's still about one percent of the population has been vaccinated one percent oh boy yeah yeah although they were maybe they were so successful in uh, handling it they don't need the vaccine as badly as the united states or other countries that's there's there's a little bit of truth in that but everyone would love to have the vaccine basically i think it's it's going to wait it's going to have to wait for the u.s to finish its vaccination program and once those u.s factories um that are currently delivering the vaccine to u.s citizens are done with that then i suspect they'll start sending a lot of their output to japan and we'll finally get our vaccines over here so it's even even lower than Europe, which has had a, a terrible rollout of, of vaccines. Surprising, um, you know, given uh, what you you know you know of of uh, the sort of a national the health service in Japan, and um, uh, again, they, if, if they weren't involved in the vaccine production, then of course there's no reason to think that they would have been uh, first in line. But uh, I think John's John's point is that since they wound up controlling it better, it um, it. it might not feel that it's it's as quite as uh, urgent as it is here, and certainly as it is in Europe. But um, it, your your comments on the the, the sort of um, you know the, the 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 growing concern over Japan's path uh, by the end of the Abe administration, Abe's term in office, uh, which was eight years and uh, eight or nine years, and um, uh, and and Suga and going forward, um, you know, to wrap up, just the last question is: it, it, Do you think that Japan is is does it feel like it's back in the sort of rudderless era that that as you mentioned marked so many years of Japanese politics before Abe returned in uh, in 2012, uh, or did he he sort of set 
the the priorities you know with Stuga as his right hand man so to speak going to go forward and, and it's just it's a less um, flashy period but they're they're going to be there's a plan they they they're carrying it out uh, continuing relations in Southeast Asia relations with India obviously uh, alliance issues um, uh, certainly some reform as you mentioned Suga uh, sort of taking on some of the uh, you know the big players in the economy. Uh, or is it just a, a sort of rudderless inertia of, of some good things happening from the Abe period, but we're heading into, uh, you know, just sort of a drift? So I guess you could say a bit like this. Uh, Abe definitely sort of created some momentum. And, you know, the, the expedition, he pointed us in a direction, got everyone together, they set off marching, and then... Now the, the leader is gone, and the expedition is still marching along, but there isn't so much leadership anymore, and it's, it's not there isn't someone driving it towards the same direction. So for the time being, everyone's still going along this same path, but it's not really clear anymore that there's decisive leadership um i think mr suga he's got to win an election this autumn he's got to have an internal party election and then there's a general election and if he wins those then i think he will have the ability to set out more of an agenda but for now everything's kind of on autopilot um following the the abe program but without abe being there if you look really fundamentally long term, the the problems Japan faced are still the same. You know, the population decline is going to be enormous, and nothing has happened to 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 change that trajectory. Um, and the deteriorating security situation is still deteriorating. And again, there's nothing happened so far that's going to change that. So those challenges are are still there. In a sense, the constraints those impose will will set Japan's direction and force it to follow a certain path in the years ahead. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's about where it stands right now. Well, it's a great uh, summation. It's obviously something that Japan watchers had been uh, waiting for in the sense of wondering what would happen once Abe was gone, uh, given his successes, given the, the, the length of time in which he had been in office. Um, Robin Harding of the Financial Times, uh, Tokyo Bureau Chief, uh, we really appreciate you taking time and talking about, again, a country that uh, remains vital in the Indo-Pacific in some ways, I would argue still the linchpin of security, uh, given given its size and its role, uh, but one that's often overlooked. And uh, we uh, are really grateful for the insights uh, and also the reporting you're doing. So everyone should be checking out Robin in the Financial Times. Uh, and thank you for joining the Pacific Century. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.